It is time to answer some big questions about our universe. This is All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light, lasers, optics, and fascinating tech news. Each episode, you'll hear groundbreaking stories from around the world about the fibers of science, from its triumphant past to its audacious future. Brought to you by Photonics Media. This is Associate Editor Joel Williams. Here are this week's top stories. A method using the color intensity of light to measure chemical concentrations may help speed the processes for developing medications, printers, and other products. A team from Purdue University created the new approach for using a light-sensitive device to measure the concentration of chemicals used in applications such as biological research and the manufacturing of consumer goods and food products. A team led by Professor Jing Wang at ETH Zurich has developed an optical biosensor that uses thermal effects to detect coronavirus safely and reliably. The dual functional plasmonic biosensor combines plasmonic photothermal and localized surface plasmon resonance on a tiny 2D gold nano island on a glass substrate. To support the development of future photonics professionals, the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers Photonics Society, the International Society for Optics and Photonics, and the Optical Society have each offered $75,000 to fund tuition for the first 15 students of a new photonics technician program. The 15-month program, which covers three academic semesters and a summer internship, will be launched in summer 2020 at Stonehill College in Bridgewater State University in Massachusetts in collaboration with MIT's Initiative for Knowledge and Innovation in Manufacturing, which leads the AIM Photonics Academy. And finally, COVID-19 antibody testing could be possible with a microfluidic device invented at the University of Michigan and developed by UM startup Optofluidic Bioassay. The new system is believed to be the first microfluidic approach to a gold standard testing protocol known as enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, or ELISA. Today's episode is sponsored by MKS Instruments and their Newport brand. The Newport product portfolio consists of a full range of solutions, including precision motion control, optical tables and vibration isolation systems, photonics instruments, optics and optomechanical components. For more information, visit www.newport.com. And by Comsol, the leading developer of multi-physics simulation software, which includes tools for building and deploying simulation apps. Comsol's wave and ray optics capabilities are used for modeling imaging and sensing in consumer electronics and biotechnology, information processing in communication systems, and more. See how the Comsol software fits your optical analysis needs at www.comsol.com. Our guest today is Dr. Jürgen Popp. He is the scientific director of the Leibniz Institute of Photonic Technology in Germany. His research focuses on the development and application of innovative linear and nonlinear 
Raman Technologies for Biophotonics, Identification for Structural Analysis of Biomolecules and Biological Systems for Biomedical Diagnosis, among many other things. Dr. Pop, thank you for coming on the show today. Yeah, many thanks for having me, and I'm welcome. <laughs> thank you. Um, so, first question, we've interviewed a lot of scientists on this show who are all researching Raman spectroscopy, but they all seem to be finding very different applications for it. What about this technology makes it so versatile? You are right. Raman spectroscopy has found its way into almost all scientific disciplines. And we can look at physics, chemistry, biology, biomedicine, pharmacy, geology, also mineralogy, but also fields like hist uh, history as well as forensic. And the reason uh, for that is that the techniques allowed the characterization of a sample without or only with a few uh, steps of sample preparation. And um, Raman spectroscopy allowed to study more or less any kind of sample. And I think what is also quite important, Raman spectroscopy is uh, also a non-invasive technology. This means that um, you can look with Raman at a specific sample, and then you can take the sample and uh, analyze this with other technologies. Or if you are working with cells, then you can use the cells uh, for further experiments. And I think this makes Raman uh, quite powerful. However, what is also quite unique uh, of Raman spectroscopy is that it's a label-free technology. And this means that you get direct chemical, biochemical information of your sample, and um, therefore, we'd like to talk about um, or describe Raman as a molecular fingerprint technique. So this means you get a vibrational pattern, and this reveals you all the information of the sample you are looking at. And this is like a fingerprint of the sample. What else is quite uh, unique now on Raman spectroscopy? This is more or less also the technical development, what occurs about the last 20 years. Uh, when I started working on Raman spectroscopy, it was more or less a technique for really specialized people like a physicist or a chemist. Now, in the meanwhile, we have a large portfolio of commercial devices which are easy to use, and therefore um, now Raman is, I think, really in a broad uh, area of application, as I mentioned this at the very beginning. And this may be a, a similar question, but two years ago, you wrote a feature for photonics.com on endospectroscopic imaging, and you outlined the various types of Raman-based modalities that are being used for that application. What differentiates each of those modalities, and why are there so many different kinds? Mm -hmm. yeah, indeed, uh, Raman spectroscopy can be operated in m many modes, and uh, the most common method uh, is Raman microspectroscopy. Here, Raman spectroscopy is coupled to a normal light microscope to record so-called hyperspectral data set, which means that uh, we will get one spectrum per pixel. And this allows us uh, to generate uh, so-called chemical images or biochemical images. However, the disadvantage of Raman spectroscopy is that it's a quite weak effect. It takes quite a long time to scan over large areas just by using ordinary Raman spectroscopy. However, there are now different approaches to hence the weak Raman signal. And 
from my perspective, the two best known methods are surface enhanced Raman spectroscopy and resonance Raman spectroscopy, which both leads to a nice amplification of the weak Raman signal by several orders of magnitude. However, there's always, always somehow also a drawback. Both techniques have the disadvantage that they will, will be hard to be used in, in medical diagnostics, uh, especially if you want to go for uh, in vivo studies, because SIRS and resonance Raman will always bring either you are going into an electronic resonance and you might destroy uh, the biosample, or with SIRS you put in metal particles and then in a living organism, this is uh, not that easy, so that's not anymore really non-invasive. And um, there are also other methods to enhance the weak signal, and this is the so-called nonlinear Raman approaches, such as coherent anti-Stokes Raman scattering or stimulated uh, Raman scattering and CARS. The coherent anti-Stokes Raman scattering, for example, allows to monitor selected single vibration out of a complex Raman spectrum, and this way you can really measure almost in real time over the surface, and then you get in a very short period of time um, this chemical information. However, in order to be able to use these Raman approaches in medical diagnostics, especially during uh, surgery, they have to be transferred into a surgical microscope or into an endoscope to visualize in decibel regions such as the intestine or the bladder. And um, in this context, for example, there was an enormous uh, progress in recent years towards the realization of endoscopic Raman approaches, not just by our groups, by many other groups all over the world. And uh, for example, now when, when we are coming to our group here in Jena, we have been able to realize an almost fully automatic Raman probe setup for the measuring of Raman spectra, not on a large area, or, but uh, on selected points. And this setup, for example, we call Invascope, and it uh, consists out of a me mechanical, very robust, medical high-quality components that can be sterilized uh, for the medical application. And the nice thing of the Invascope is that there is no adjustment required. It's plug and play. You can just operate this in the operation theater and the operator can be easily be a physician. And at the moment we are in the progress of preparing this assembly for clinical testing, which is certainly very challenging because we have to prepare a comprehensive documentation according to the new medical device regulation uh, for the in vivo clinical testing. When do you expect that to um, hit the market? So we are doing this um, not directly to, to translate this to the market, but to tra translate this into the hospital so that we can do the in vivo measurement. Because you need to have already now more or less an approved medical device in order to test this on humans. And um, this is the regulation we have or the, the process we are going through at the moment. Yeah, but what else? So we have this Raman probe, which is uh, based on um, ordinary linear Raman spectroscopy. But um, we have also developed some other Raman probes, 
where we use these nonlinear Raman modalities and we have uh, developed here different concepts. The big advantage is um, that the, the, in this case you can scan over larger areas and you can produce images, uh, which is with the ordinary linear Raman spectroscopy quite difficult. So there are different approaches in order to get into this medical field. Recently, you published your findings on the development of metal nanostructures. From my understanding, these nanostructures help create sensors for detecting molecules, but to me, they kind of sound like microscopic robots. Could you break down the need for this sort of technology and where the idea came from and where you might see it being applied? Mm -hmm. Yeah, metallic nanostructures show uh, exceptional optical properties. That means if you um, shine in laser light close to a specific uh, absorption frequency, then we will get a very strong electromagnetic field enhancement uh, close to the surface. And this means um, these surface plasmons, when they are excited, they lead to a very efficient field enhancement. And if molecules are close to the surface, then you get uh, a Raman signal, which is enhanced by several orders of magnitude. You can even go down to single molecule detection. And this technique has been called the surface enhanced Raman spectroscopy. It's quite old. It has been invented uh, end of the 70s and beginning of the 80s. And um, the technique is now suitable for the detection of molecules, which has a low molecular weight, or you can use it for biomacromolecules, and you can even use it for the detection of uh, virus particles, bacteria, for cells outside or inside cells, or it has been used for tissue investigation. So you could apply this to anything? You can apply this to many things, but um, uh, I think what is quite important, uh, you have to look at how large is the affinity of a specific molecule towards this metal surface. For example, if you have an analyte uh, which has a large affinity to the metal surface, then the big advantage is you can be even in a, in a very complex matrix, and then you don't need to have too many steps of uh, sample preparation, because if the matrix is not interacting with the surface, then your analyte molecule will give a nice signal. However, if you have matrix molecules in your sample, which has a high affinity, then uh, it's very difficult to use this approach without any sample preparation. The point is, whatever is close to the surface will feel this field enhancement and gives you a nice Raman signal. Not necessarily, this is the molecule of interest. Our interest of this technology is that we want to use it again in the clinical environment. We want to look at samples coming from the patient. And uh, for example, we want to monitor uh, what is the amount of a specific drug, like an antibiotic, inside the um, biofluid. It could be urine, but it could be also serum or plasma, in order to see if the treatment is always in the appropriate, let's say, window where the drug shows the highest affinity or effectiveness. In 2017, you wrote about the barriers researchers have faced when implementing label-free techniques in biomedical imaging. 
You mentioned this earlier, but could you explain uh, what label-free techniques are exactly and what barriers you're still facing today? If biophotonics approaches uh, want to be translated into clinical practice, it's a real advantage if they are label-free. That means no, no external label are required to produce the molecular contrast. The administration of external label or contrast agent requires always very cost-intensive studies to prove that these markers are harmless for the patient. And these studies are almost as expensive as studies for the introduction of a new drug. To my knowledge, there are only a few, for example, fluorophores, uh, or fluorescent markers, which has been clinically being approved. This is IGC or methylene blue or this 5-amino levoline acid. And these labels are injected into the patient. They accumulate, for example, inside the tumor or in vessels, and then they can be excited by a laser. Then you can make them visible by using the corresponding fluorescence. Certainly, this advantage of these approved markers are they are not really working in a target way. We have a lot of unspecific binding and usually those markers are excreted quite fast, which reduces also the optimal time window for the visualization of these markers. And this target imaging through the administration of innovative markers that bind specifically, for example, to a tumor there, this is a very exciting and really highly topical field of research, but as I mentioned it earlier, it still will be very expensive to get the medical approval. And therefore, it's a big advantage to have technologies which don't rely on such an external label. And as I said, Raman spectroscopy is one of those methods, and they provide valuable biochemical information without the need of an external marker just by looking at the intrinsic vibrational fingerprint pattern of the molecules being in the focus of the laser. Another method which has been already being used clinically is uh, Raman imaging, uh, which allows to highlight, for example, the blood circulation through tissue without the need of any markers. So there you can see the big advantage of Raman spectroscopy towards other techniques when we want to use them for in vivo application. Now, using vibrational spectroscopy, you studied a patient who was diagnosed with dilated cardiomyopathy undergoing immunoabsorption therapy. Can you talk about what you learned and what the vibrational spectroscopy added to your research? So the study you are talking about uh, is a case report where a 52-year-old female patient with the so-called dilated cardiomyopathy, just DCM, uh, is receiving an immunoabsorption ther therapy. And we were looking with two vibrational methods to the outcome. And um, the aim of this um, observational study was to investigate um, what biochemical changes are occurring in blood plasma and serum as a response to this therapeutic approach. And the immunoabsorption is a method which purifies uh, the blood by selectively removing the antibodies. 
And in this case study, the patient was receiving this immunoabsorption therapy. And this means she underwent in the first step um, this IG, IgG antibody removal. In the next day, the patient received uh, so-called polyclonal I, IgG antibodies. And the outcome of this immunoabsorption therapy was then followed over the time period of several months. The patient received uh, one session of this immunoabsorption therapy, and uh, then the blood plasma and the serum samples were collected for the analysis before receiving this therapeutic approach, and then afterwards at different time points up to an entire year. And with vibrational spectroscopy, we were able to monitor the blood composition changes with the progression of time after the immunoabsorption therapy has been taking place. And with Raman and IR spectroscopy, it was possible to monitor, first of all, the depletion of the anti-cardiac antibodies and then the restoration of the IgG by following the vibrational signals of the IgG. The results were then cross-verified by measuring the IgG concentration in the blood plasma and the serum using uh, the traditional applied immunoassay measurement. And we found a very good agreement with this, between the classical assay and the spectroscopic results. The added value using vibration spectroscopy, in addition to that the technique is fast, cost-effective, and uh, just to minimize sample processing is needed, we got additional information on not only the target chemical compound of the ITG, but also we got signatures of other biochemicals, such as, for example, proteins or lipids has been obtained. And by looking at the data, for example, we found uh, that carotenoids, which are uh, abundant in healthy donors, whereas the concentration in the deceased patient is uh, minimized, which is then leading to a certain uh, information about the disease severity. And um, in our case study, the patient, we could identify that there was a change in the carotenoid signal in the plasma and the serum before and afterwards, which is more or less showing the success of the therapeutic approach. And it's also showing that with this approach, you're not just looking at the IgG signal, but you can also somehow prognose the outcome for the patient. And um, therefore, we believe that uh, in this case, IR and Raman spectroscopy shows a really high potential for uh, personalized care and uh, control. When I hear about that case study, it, it sounds like there might have been a lot of time-sensitive issues involved with it. Can you talk about that? Were there any challenges you faced as far as getting things done on time? Um, certainly, what is quite important is that um, the entire, let's say, you have to develop a standard operation procedure that it's always done in the same way. Otherwise, uh, it's getting really time critical because then uh, you will have some alteration in the sample, which is just due to the, let's say, the time which is going on uh, when doing the experiments. But um, there we established a, a nice uh, standard operation procedure, which allows us that we can really see um, and compare this uh, with these classical methods. And it turned out that uh, in any case, we were very good in the timing, uh, and, and therefore the SOP works quite nice.
You're also researching early disease detection. How is Raman spectroscopy now being used in that effort? Yeah, it's mentioned uh, earlier, Raman spectroscopy provides molecular information that can be used to diagnose diseases at an early stage. And um, I'd like to give you an, an example of uh, from our current research. We are active in a European research consortium that is working on the early detection of the neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer or this age-related macular degeneration, AMD. And uh, uh, that at the fundus of the eye. For this purpose, for example, we used Raman spectroscopy in combination with optical coherence tomography. OCT, as you know, is already routinely used in ophthalmology. It allows the morphology of the retina to be visualized very well. And molecular information about the biochemical composition, for example, on the lipids or the protein structure certainly can't be obtained by OCT. However, Raman provides this information. The disadvantage certainly of Raman spectroscopy, as mentioned earlier, is um, that it takes quite long time to scan large areas. And um, therefore, OCT will be used to identify the morphological suspicious structures, which then will be investigated in detail using Raman spectroscopy. And with this combination of techniques, it may then be possible to detect the presence of plaque in the ocular fundus at a very early stage. This means long before any symptoms appear. It is also to say that the eye is a window to the brain. We have now been able to show that it is in principle possible to use Raman spectroscopy to measure the fundus of the eye. This is certainly a real challenge because you have to measure through the eye with a laser and therefore only very low laser power can be used. And this is, from my perspective, a very nice example how Raman can be used for an early diagnosis in the future. In your research, you were able to combine so many different variations of Raman spectroscopy, as you mentioned earlier, and you had also mentioned your studying of tissue diagnostics. How did you figure out that this could actually work by combining everything together? Um, so we have not combined different forms of Raman spectroscopy here, but generally different forms of spectroscopy. This we call the multimodal imaging. Any spectroscopic or in generally any photonic technology can be characterized in terms of sensitivity, selectivity, penetration depth, spatial resolution, the acquisition speed. And uh, in this multimodal spectroscopical approach, one or we try to combine the good of one method with the good of another method. And I have already mentioned the example earlier where we combine OCT, which allows uh, to study the morphology, to visualize large areas, and then using Raman spectroscopy to look at the biochemistry, but just at single points or small areas. And by combining both methods, morphological areas can be identified, and then we get a nice molecular information on the details by using Raman spectroscopy. We have also combined Raman with fluorescence lifetime imaging. This is a nice approach where we have also a very fast technique with fluorescence lifetime imaging. It's a real-time method. Uh, 
and then combined with Raman, where we get all this nice chemical molecular information. And um, another multimodal approach we are working on is the combination of nonlinear techniques, like we combine the coherent anti-Stokes Raman scattering with a second harmonic generation and the two-photon excitation fluorescence in one imaging approach. And CARS certainly is delivering us the molecular information at the same time we get the fluorescence that we can mean that means we can look at the fluorophores which are naturally being present for example in a biosample it could be NADPH or it could be FAD and at the same time we are also because we're using pulsed lasers we are exciting then the second harmonic generation of molecules which have no central symmetry anymore like proteins, and uh, here we, for example, we can look easily at collagen. And if we display now this simultaneously, these three contrast mechanisms, for example, CARS, we look at the lipids or the proteins and the fluorescence, the two-photon excited fluorescence, we look at the outer fluorophores, and with SHG, we look at collagen. Then we get out of this combination of techniques, we get so-called morphochemical images, and that means we have an image where we have morphological information and at the same time chemical contrast. However, what is quite challenging, and this is whenever you're using optical spectroscopy with biological samples, the challenging part is the interpretation of the data. And there you need machine learning or you need artificial intelligence in order to retrieve the information out of an image or even out of the Raman spectra because it's not sufficient to look just at the Raman data or the images. No, you need sophisticated mathematical methods in order to retrieve the underlying information. However, if you're doing this, then it's easy to use this technique to look at a tissue and see, is this tumorous tissue or is it already healthy tissue? You can detect the tumor border and, uh, for example, by using Raman spectroscopy, you can go for the staging or the grading of a tumor. And this certainly is something which is quite unique by using these label-free technologies. Before you started on attempting that, did you expect those positive results or were you apprehensive? In literature, before we started, you, you could already see that um, these techniques SHG and two photofluorescence, but also coherent anti-stokes Raman scattering are very powerful, giving uh, us different type of information. And what we realized is that when you use pulsed lasers, then you get everything at the same time. And uh, therefore, we, we, we thought that the combination of this technique will lead to, to something which is very beneficial because then you can be much faster than ordinary Raman spectroscopy. And this is why we are going for these different modalities. But nowadays we combine um, not even these three modalities. We also include the stimulated Raman, but we also include fluorescent lifetime imaging uh, in more or less one setup so that we can use the different contrast more or less at the same time in order to get the highest content of information out of the sample. You talked about your work in optical coherence tomography before. Can you talk about the benefit of that working alongside Raman spectroscopy or what challenges they might face together? 
I guess um, this is somehow the, the same question, or I would give more or less the same answer as I gave before. So, as I said, optical coherence tomography is a, a beautiful technique, which is very well established, especially in uh, ophthalmology, but now entering also other fields. It's a quite fast technique. You can go uh, for large uh, areas. You get uh, very nice morphological information, but uh, what is missing certainly is um, the underlying chemical information. And when you look now at literature and the different groups, you can see that many of these groups now realize, okay, having one technique is not the solution for all the problems. So you need a combination. So you have to take the best from different worlds in order to come up with a good solution. And um, therefore, OCT is powerful, but um, you need to add further information and therefore we aim, for example, for with we go for Raman spectroscopy, but we also combine this with SLIM. We have now established an experimental setup in the clinic for head and neck cancer where we have these three modalities combined and we got now the first results on the patient's samples. So this is an ex vivo study and the, the images we can produce out of this are so rich on information um, that uh, I think this is something where we can really show that we uh, we have an added value for the patient as well as the physician uh, on tumor border detection or the same thing on staging and grading of a tumor. Now, whether it's spectroscopy or molecular analysis, all the different fields and studies that you've been involved in, when you look into the future, whether that's 10 or 100 years from now, what do you predict will be the most exciting breakthrough in the technology that you're researching? The routine application of photonic approaches during surgery in terms of performing a reliable optical tissue analysis. I think this is something which we'll have. This means that we bring the world of pathology towards the digital pathology on a really new level and to make surgeries even more effective in identifying, for example, tumors and to remove them directly. So this means we want to use optical technologies in vivo to see where the tumor is, where the tumor border is, and then use light, now, for example, then femtosecond laser pulses to directly remove the tumor from the patient. And you can always control if you have uh, detected the tumor border and if now the patient, at least in this area, is free of a tumor. And uh, I think these new diagnostic approaches are entering the, the medical field. And um, this is, let's say, one of the aim we are looking for. If you were to talk to an undergraduate student or a medical student who wants to work for you, what advice would you give them today? First thing, he needs or she needs to be open-minded. She and he should, the student should really go for her, his interests. You need to combine, when you are working um, in, in, in our groups, interest in different fields. This means you have to be open-minded towards, if you're coming from being a physicist or chemist, you have to go into a field which is not necessarily your your home base. Yeah, you have to leave your comfort zone because you have to talk to physician, you have to talk to biologist, and this is certainly a complete different world. Therefore, that is what I'm saying. You need to be open-minded. 
you have to cross borders uh, in order to really achieve something new. On the other side, um, you should no, you should not be biased because very often when we do some experiments, we expect a specific outcome. And um, if you have a certain bias, then certainly it could be that you push your experiments towards this bias. And again, you should be open-minded. You should expect um, the unexpected, especially if you're working in such a very interdisciplinary field. You can't really predict what is the outcome of your experiment. And the third thing, um, what is, I think, requested, and it's again related to be open-minded, is you have to plan your experiments very precisely because at the very end you rely on statistics. And this means if you're producing data and you don't have taken into account um, that your experimental approach already can give a bias into your data, at the very end you see your experimental approach or but not the underlying information uh, you're looking for. And I think these are three things you have to keep in mind when entering this field, and especially also when working in, uh, in our department. And finally, in the broad industry of photonics, what is one thing not related to your field that you're really excited about? Oh, I'm very excited about the emerging field of quantum imaging, which is uh, somehow a new branch of quantum optics. And uh, I'm very excited that this quantum imaging uses the quantum correlations like this quantum entanglement, where you have the entanglement of, for example, two photons, and you can use them for imaging, maybe in the future for quantum ghost imaging or, and, or for example, for quantum sensor technology. And this is something I, I'm really excited it's far away from being used in, in a biomedical application, but I hope that uh, with this technology in the next 10, 15 years, we will be able uh, also to enter the field of biomedical applications. But this is something which is really far away from any application at the moment. But it's very exciting because it's showing a new way of doing, for example, an imaging which is beyond any criteria which we know from classical optics. That's Dr. Jürgen Popp. He's the scientific director of the Leibniz Institute of Photonic Technology in Germany. Dr. Popp, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That'll do it for this episode of All Things Photonics. Our engineers are Alan Shepard and Brian Healy. Our featured artist is Kid Animal out of Los Angeles. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite music app. Thank you most of all to you, our listeners. If you have a suggestion for a story or you just want to reach out, you can email us at allthingsatphotonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google. Subscribe wherever you may be listening and never miss a new episode. You can also subscribe to this podcast on our website, photonics.com slash podcast, where you will find episode notes, links to complete stories you heard, and some interesting side stories that didn't make it in. I'm your host, Emmett Warren. You've been listening to a Photonics Media production.